This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, I got all these bits and bites everywhere, all over my office, and I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Well, what if you made them into a website? You Ooh, like that's a good stitched idea. them together? I don't know how to yeah. do that, though. Do you know someone who could help you? Because I can't. Y- you know who I think could help us with that are the wizards over at Squarespace, Whoa. the website wizards. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they tell us to call them now, I guess. Yeah, totally. <laughs> the website wizards at Squarespace. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. They help you showcase your work, blog, or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, and so much more. They help you do this by giving you beautiful website templates created by world-class designers. Those are the wizards, I think. Uh, powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. And uh, everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. So whether you are on your phone on the couch or on your laptop on the couch, your website's going to look good on Squarespace. Um, They've also got 24-7 award-winning customer support, and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. We use Squarespace for our website. We've been very happy with them. We think you will be too. If you've got extra bits and bytes that you want to make into a website, go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com slash overdue. Use the offer code overdue. Save 10%. Squarespace. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And it's a big one. I'm sleepy because <laughs> I've done 449 plus some others episodes of this show. Yeah, I feel like as we get further out, the the episode numbers mean a little bit less because we have ones that don't count. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean... 450 episodes of a podcast already feels like turning like 34. Yes, like it's not a big deal. Correct. It's not really worth acknowledging except in passing. An age so I did turn this year and went, yeah. meh, okay, whatever. Eh, okay. I turned 35 and that was like, I can round up to 40 now. So that's great. That is great. Look at uh, you rounding up. Everything's look at looking up. up. So for 500, probably we'll get off our butts and do something. But for 450, this is just a normal one. It's, well, but it's. This is the big sleep by Raymond Chandler, which is a it is the book. biggest sleep that, that that there is that you can get. Yeah, I hear the big one because it's because it's death because you sleep forever. Spoiler alert! Late title card. It's death. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a book. Tell us, tell them what our podcast yeah, is. Yeah, so we try to read books that we uh, think we should have read by now. Usually, books you've heard of, or if books that you have not heard of, maybe some of our listeners have recommended them, and they maybe cover an author or a genre that maybe we should tackle but this one big sleep by raymond chandler is like sort of a to to put on my my snobbery no, reedy nerd glasses it's sort of an urtext for the hard-boiled detective novel um or at least a a you know an exemplar of the genre um, oh my God, it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> and it's one that I have been... Take those glasses off. Oh, oh, oh sorry. It's one I've... I told you not to put those on when you were podcasting. <laughs> I have been... I like keep putting this on and off our schedule, and now we're finally here doing it, because 
uh, it comes up in other media I consume. It comes up in other TV shows. It get ta- it gets talked about when you're talking about just crime fiction and detective fiction. Uh, I've never seen the Humphrey Bogart film, but I hear people like it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Humphrey Bogart plays the character Philip Marlowe, who is the protagonist of this story, and then uh, seven other yeah. Raymond Chandler books, the the last of which was uh, published posthumously. We'll yes. talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, this is a, a hard-boiled detective novel. And this character has is in all of them. Yes. So that's something. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know whether he makes an impression on you as a character or if he's just kind of a pile of old timey lingo and, and ticks and stuff. <laughs> uh, if he's just like drinking belts of whiskey and talking to dames who got gams down to the floor and, you know. There, the stuff there that, the stuff that these these types do. There is a woman with like with a thigh shaken walk or something. I don't really remember. Ooh. Whose thighs? Hers or yours? <laughs> Good okay. question. I think it was hers, but I don't know. Uh, we should probably talk about Chandler first uh, yeah. before we get into the book proper. What do you know about mm-hmm. uh, Ray? Everybody loves him. Everybody loves... Could everybody love Raymond Chandler more? <laughs> Jeez. Is that a melding of the two? Oh, Deborah, that's a messy one. <laughs> Deborah, uh, Raymond Chandler. <laughs> he was born in 1888. He died in 1959. He became an author after losing a job at an oil company during the Great Depression. Um, lest you think that the Great Depression was solely responsible, he was apparently an alcoholic womanizer yeah. who frequently missed work. So that probably contributed, sure, as well as the economic depression. Yeah. Um, his first short story was published in 1933, and The Big Sleep, which is his first novel, came out in 1939. Um, like I said, he ended up writing a total of seven novels himself, and then an eighth novel published. Uh, he finished like four chapters of it, and then it was finished by somebody else. Um, he was born in Chicago to a father who left and an Irish mother who moved the family to London afterward. Um, he Chandler had some early writing experience as a journalist and a poet, in the early 1900s, uh, though the, obviously neither of those things is what he's really known for. He had a, there was kind of a pause in his his writing career. He had this run-in with this writer named Richard Middleton, who um, later died by suicide, and this made Chandler sort of skeptical of his future as a, as a writer. The quote that I got is, uh, the incident made a great impression on me because Middleton struck me as having far more talent than I was ever likely to possess. And if he couldn't make a go of it, it wasn't very likely that I could. Huh. Um, so he returns to America in 1912. He makes his way up to Canada, enlists in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, uh, yep. where is where he fights in World War One. Uh, he caught the Spanish flu two times in a fun pandemic footnote. Mask up, Raymond. um and and yeah so he he works his way into this oil company gets he gets let go and then after this he teaches himself to you know write crime fiction by reading crime fiction like pulp crime fiction and then imitating it which is how i've learned to write a whole bunch of stuff so it was a (laughs) it is a an approach that i respect yeah he was writing and he was writing a lot of pulp fiction it's it's my understanding that this book comes from a number of stories that he wrote that he kind of like Frankensteined together. Mm-hmm. 
I what do I think I have the notes somewhere. Uh, Killer in the Rain and the Curtain, um, mm-hmm. 1935 and 1936. These are stories he published in the like pulp rag, The Black Mask. Uh, well, that's that's uh, I don't know if we need to editorialize about whether it was a rag or not. Oh, well, but that I, is definitely I thought the I was popular... I thought I was using lingo. I wasn't trying to like <laughs> besmirch that's definitely it. the the popular conception of the of, of the magazine, and and he has a lot of stuff. Like this, this is a quote I found from him about about genre and about writing pulp stuff. Yeah. Um, he says, as I look back on my stories, it would be absurd if I did not wish they had been better. But if they had been much better, they would not have been published. <laughs> if the formula had been a little less rigid, more of the writing of that time might have survived. Some of us tried pretty hard to break out of the formula, but we usually got caught and sent back. To exceed the limits of a formula without destroying it is the dream of every magazine writer who is not a hopeless hack. Huh. So, yeah, he wrote starting in the, starting in 1933 with that first short story, he wrote a bunch of stories for black mask which was a one of the sort of founding uh documents for this specific genre of hard-boiled detective fiction uh hard-boiled describes like it features like anti-hero detectives fighting against both organized crime that flourished during and after prohibition in the 1920s and 30s as well as corrupt law enforcement so it's sort of you know the detective against the world yep um, Black Mask ran from 1920 to 1951 and specialized in this kind of fiction um, and issues of Black Mask with Chandler stories in them are collector's items because these these were widely conceived of as very disposable things. Mm, mm. You know, not, man, not many of them survive. It, it would be sort of like, I guess, if there was a particular like Archie and Jughead double digest <laughs> that was that was really popular in sure. like 30 years yes. <laughs> and you had to find like still existing copies of it. it uh Black Mask like it's it 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 launched a bunch of writers careers uh, but it it sort of met a met a not even a sad end it just kind of petered out like its readership and and leadership both waned starting in like the mid to late 30s um, and then died in 1951, was revived very briefly in the 80s, and then revived again very briefly in 2016. Hmm. Um, as far as I can tell, the last available issue of the new Black Mask was made in 2019. All right. Um, following four biannual issues in like fall 16, spring and fall of 17, and then spring of, of 18. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like... And and one thing you asked me to research, I don't know if, if you want to take... No, we don't need to take a break. We don't have a break this we week. We do right? not. Uh, we can just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you talked a little bit about um, about noir as a genre and about this story as part of that genre. And I did want to make sure that we yes. noted uh-huh. that there are distinctions there to make are. between like the hard-boiled detective genre and the noir genre. This is... Um, Something from a writer named Eddie Duggan, who writes, who who wrote a uh, a a distinction of the two that I think sums it up pretty well. Uh, he says the main difference between the classic hard-boiled writers and the noir writers can probably be characterized by two tendencies: a tendency in hard-boiled writing to paint a backdrop of institutionalized social corruption, and a tendency in noir writing to focus on personal psychology, whether it is despair, paranoia, or some other psychological crisis. The two schools, if we can call these tendencies schools, are by no means mutually exclusive. Hard-boiled writing can display elements of noir, and noir writing can be hard-boiled. So definitely interrelated, but 
interested and slightly different. Yeah, things. I saw there was another article by a um, it was a, it was a Lit Hub interview with an author named Megan Abbott, who's written a number of novels, including Give Me Your Hand. Wrote her thesis on hard boiled fiction, which in another interview she said was just an excuse to read a bunch of Chandler. Um, <laughs> and she talks about hard boiled being kind of an extension of the Wild West, like martial law narratives, where you're like you're somewhat fallen main character is a detective or a cop but they they're they're still trying to like restore order to the world and then noir is maybe centered on the victims of crime or or other sort of like the right and wrong are not as clearly defined and that that does map to this book like there is a sense in philip marlowe that there is maybe like Maybe it's not in him, but there is like a moral, there is some sort of objective morality that people could at least strive for if they cared to, <laughs> uh, even though maybe the world he's in is is beyond saving, uh, perhaps. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, the other thing I found of his, he wrote something called The Simple Art of Murder, which was originally published in the Atlantic in an essay in 1944, and then oh, this sounds like a like how-to guy a little bit. It's a little a little close to that for my comfort. It's been adapted, and then it was like adapted and republished a number of times, and it's basically him just gushing over Dashiell Hammett, who wrote the Maltese Falcon uh, and the Thin Man. Um, and created like Sam Spade and a couple other hardball detectives. And he contrasts that type of story with the British, like Agatha Christie murder mystery, where I, it it's a little bit about the like difference between a locked room mystery. And this is a mystery that's goes all the way to the top, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit of I, the the one quote he says is Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse, <laughs> which I think really gets to the heart of like, it's not just about like, can you, the reader suss out what's going on? It's about what these, these stories about murder and crime and corruption say about the world around you. Well, and this is my last uh, quote from Chandler that I have in my research. That's, that's about how it's about, making a mystery or a detective story that is mm. about more than the, than the resolution of the, like who, who done it. Oh yeah. Um, he says the emotional basis of the standard detective story was, and had always been that murder will out and justice will be done. It's technical basis was the relative insignificance of everything except the final denouement. What led up to that was more or less passage work. The denouement would justify everything. The technical basis of the black mask type of story, on the other hand, was that the scene outranked the plot in the sense that a good plot was one which made good scenes. The ideal mystery was one you would read if the end was missing. Yeah, and apparently that like bears out for this story. Not not to say that the end is missing from this story, but there is a story about the adaptation for the film where there's a character, there's a chauffeur who dies in this story. He gets, Mm -hmm. they find him, him in a car, driven off a pier, and someone has hit him in the head. And the the book never tells you exactly what happened to him. It's possible that someone hit him in the head and then drove him off the pier, but you don't know. And when they were working on the film, they wrote Raymond Chandler a letter and they're like, "Yo, what happened? Like what why is why is this?" <laughs> and he wrote them back. He's like, "I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know." <laughs> 
And it turns out that the real mystery was the friends that we made along the way. Yes. Um, Don't you know. And, and that the point of parts of, of the story is not to have every little detail come to full meaning and to be a clue but that there's like an additive effect of these like various events and people and things um, that like paint a picture of this corrupt LA where anything is possible for mm-hmm. evil or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so what, what are your, f- I'm just trying to, I'm trying to make sense of your, like of the voice that you're just making. <laughs> like what? It was my detective voice. That was my noir <laughs> voice. I don't know if you know that. All right. All right. All right. All right. So, the book opens it so one thing that I think sets Marlowe apart from some of his predecessors is the book is first person through Marlowe's perspective. Uh through sets Chandler apart rather. Um and so it opens uh it was about eleven o'clock in the morning, mid October, with the sun not shining and a look of hard wet rain and the clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder blue suit with dark blue shirt, tie and display handkerchief black brogues, black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. I was neat, clean, shaved, and sober, and I didn't care who knew it. I was everything the well-dressed protective, uh, private detective ought to be. I was calling on $4 million. And this is him standing in the foyer of a rich general's house uh, in L.A. And I was reading about this opening passage, and a lot of folks have remarked on the fact that, like, Never in the rest of the book does Marlo look like this. <laughs> like he is <laughs> always disheveled. He is always pouring himself a drink in the middle of the day. He gets beat up a bunch and like lives to soldier on. And so from the very get go, people are playing parts. They are uh, portraying roles to each other. There are multiple parts in the book actually where he remarks, Marlo does, on like people playing to Hollywood stereotypes. Like there's Mm -hmm. a character he meets, uh, Joe Brody later. And he's like, that's a good name. Yeah, It's pretty good. Um, and he's like, Oh yeah, this guy talks like the bad guys in Hollywood talk. Like Mm -hmm. Hollywood has spoiled bad guys to always talk like this now (laughs) because they want to sound like the criminals in the movies. And so, Mm To an extent that this is the beginning. It's not the beginning of a genre. It's very aware of the genre it's playing in, even if it for even if it's Chandler's first go at it as a full novel. Um, he's obviously aware of like the sandbox and the and the reader expectations of the sandbox he's playing in. Yeah, like I- examples of this kind of fiction go back to at least nineteen seventeen, I think. Like it, it didn't pick up that that hard-boiled genre name mm. until sometime mm. in the 20s but to describe yeah, like the the wikipedia article for chandler describes him as a founder which is a it's fun a, sort yeah. of wiggle word like that <laughs> that a is doing a lot of of work there to, to mask the fact that he is writing some like decade after this genre sort of became established that's a good point that's a good point he's, I mean, he's definitely he's definitely a uh, a giant of it yeah and it's not you don't have to do a thing first to to be like the best known for it, but it, it's not like he is pioneering necessarily these character archetypes or this like tonal thing Correct. that he's doing. And yeah. there's also a lot of good writing out there about the difference between Marlowe in this book and maybe your impressions of him from the film adaptations and certainly like the Bogart portrayal in big in the film of Big Sleep. 
that like once you make it once you're like making a Hollywood movie of it, you want this guy to be like dashing and a you know a romantic lead that your audience might be interested in and find like this you know compelling portrait of masculinity and Marlowe's kind of a mess in that regard in in some mm-hmm. ways that uh are bad and in some ways that are interesting um I was surprised that he kind of rejects wholesale any feminine advances in the book um he does like make out with a couple of the primary women characters but like a couple of a couple of dizzy twists he does <laughs> yes at one point a dame does come into his office he does describe her gams and whatnot he does, i don't think he says Excellent. gams but he talks about her legs a lot um, i mean i we we don't need to get all the way into this i have done a little bit of research on on slang ooh. for these noir noir novels and the word like there are like four or five words that you have a million synonyms for and oh. they are like police women legs mostly women's legs <laughs> money and alcohol yeah, sure <laughs> yeah. i would like to revisit that a little later in the show if we have oh time. we definitely okay, will I, I have a whole i have a whole thing but i wanted to get a little bit further yeah, into the book that makes before sense. we before we dove into that. Um, so well, let me set up the plot a little bit and we can revisit this idea of how Marlowe relates to the women in the novel. Because I think that the, the how he relates to women and how he relates to other men in the story, I think, are something that pulled my focus a bit as a 21st century reader, even as I was appreciating what it was doing as a mystery. So Marlowe, who's a private eye, has been hired by Jen. We call him a private dick because that is what he is. I I think someone says that. I think someone also calls him a peeper at one point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a thing that you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, he's hired by General Sternwood, who is an ailing old man who made a bunch of his money in oil fields, but now he's basically rotting alive, paralyzed from the waist down in his uh, greenhouse where he takes care of orchids and gets occasionally blackmailed because of his rambunctious daughters, Carmen and Vivian. Uh, as General Cernwood says, Vivian is spoiled, exacting, smart, and quite ruthless. Carmen is a child who likes to pull wings off flies. Neither of them has any more moral sense than a cat. Which is a <laughs> thing your dad could say about his children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that a bookseller, Arthur Geiger, is blackmailing the general because of his daughter Carmen, who has recently been blackmailed by Joe Brody, and Sternwood paid Brody off, so... Uh, so he has hired Marlo to look into this and Marlo picks up on something that people ask him about the rest of the book, which is that Vivian's husband, Rusty Reagan has gone missing. Rusty Reagan. Rusty Reagan. Um, that sounds like, that sounds like slang to it me. Does. Like, oh, give, uh, give him a Rusty give Reagan. Give him a Rusty Reagan. Um, we don't know why he's gone. The story that a lot of people have been telling is that he ran off with the wife of a guy named Eddie Mars, who runs a casino. Uh, he converted a ballroom into a into a craps casino, essentially, and roulette and stuff. Um, but everyone is, keeps asking Marlo, hey, did the old man hire you to find Rusty? And he's like, mm-hmm. no, the old man didn't tell me anything about Rusty. This is about the blackmail thing with car I got to look into this book guy like leave me alone like even Vivian at the beginning of the book when he when he comes into their house she's like hey are you looking did my dad tell you to look for Rusty 
And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, of course, the second half of the book, after the first mystery is quote unquote solved, uh, is Marlo going, I think there's something more into this Rusty thing. I think the general <laughs> does want me to look into Rusty. Marlo's suspicion is that uh, the general is worried because Rusty used to be in a bootlegging and the general formed a bond with this man who didn't really like the daughter that he married, but he does respect this guy and the guy's gone now and he wants to make sure that he's okay. Um, so Mar- Wait, real quick, when do we know when this is happening? Is this during prohibition, post prohibition? <sighs> like, would it be happening contemporaneously, which is with when it was published, which is 1939? Like, I think it's, do we have a sense? My gut says is that it's it's contemporaneous. We could um, okay. I don't know that there's anything to to tell me that to the contrary. Um, people are drinking a bunch, and they're okay. Yeah, just just kind of wondering vis a vis prohibition specifically. Sure, sure. Um. And I mean, I, I, it's because the whole thing is kind of kind of probably feels like a period piece now. Yeah. You kind of have to you have to shake yourself of, of thinking that it was intentional. Like he was just writing about the period that it was and he wasn't trying to evoke like a gangstery past I, necessarily. When does when does prohibition go away? Because everything that I found is just that it's set in the 30s. Yeah, Prohibition goes away in, I believe, 1933, but let me make absolutely okay. sure that sure. that is the case. Um, yeah, 1920 uh, to 1933, yeah. Okay, great. Um, I think it's after. I believe it's after. Okay. Um, after, but we all remember what it was yo, like, yeah. and we're all, we're all drinking like it's our last one. <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, <laughs> so Marlo goes to invite the, to investigate this Geiger guy, who is blackmailing the general for Carmen and the Geiger guy is running a porn library. It takes a little Mm. while before that, that becomes completely clear, but he is running some, some sort of like hidden smut bookshop where men come in and take, you know, porn books out. Geiger is also, he has a secret encoded blue book of all of his clients he appears to be blackmailing them into being his customers. I've read a little bit that this like stretches the <laughs> imagination of <laughs> what uh, you know porn peddlers may have been doing at the time, but it it works in the sense that it creates an air of mystery around Geiger and who he's dealing with, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Where do they keep the cash register in that porn establishment? It's a great question. I think they keep it on the Geiger counter. Oh boy, it's getting getting a really high reading from this one. Oh <laughs> wow! <laughs> that's that's the first rule of improv: is that they tell you to just stop and consider <laughs> the jokes that you're favorite. hearing. I, lo- I love going to the show. <laughs> Um, it's not. It's neither yes and nor no, but it's just huh. <laughs> yeah, huh. <laughs> huh. So yes and no, but and huh. So are the three <laughs> forms of improv. Um, mm-hmm. So Marlowe is investigating this Geiger and his counter of porn, and um, it comes to a head with uh, him following Geiger to his house. 
he sees a flash and hears some bangs, um, runs in. Carmen, Sternwood's daughter, is there. She's clearly been, like, I don't know if she's high, but also drunk, and she's been getting photographed nude by Geiger, but someone came in and shot Geiger. So he takes her back to her house, and when he comes back, Geiger's gone. Um, and you don't, and no one knows where he went. And that's that's kind of the like inciting incident of like, oh crap, stuff's gonna pop off. Some mm-hmm. people sped away from the scene. He doesn't know who it is. Um, something I think that Marlowe does that I liked about this story is that like he's not afraid to introduce new characters or like push forward characters that you thought were background players like a pretty f- far way into the narrative. So um, like Geiger, I thought was going to be like a focus of the book and he's <laughs> off pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, Agnes, who I think is the one with the thighs that we meet at, who actually mans Geiger's counter. Ag- Agnes with the thighs. She does man Geiger's counter uh, at his smut mm-hmm. shop. She gets involved with Joe Brody and then she becomes like, a bit of a player, more than a bit player, but a bit of a player later in the book. Um, he introduces this guy, Harry Jones, like past halfway through the book, who becomes like crucial to to unfurling the back half of the plot. I just appreciated that it wasn't the um, what the murder on the Orient Express, where it's like, let's tell you all 13 people that are going to be important and then you have to figure out, yeah, yeah, what makes all of them tick and which of them did the murder. Yeah. Be- I do like that all of these names, like every single one of these characters, their name is constructed to be made by a character who says, ah, see? <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> well, so like, let me hit you with the first. One of the things that um, Mar- uh, Chandler, because I keep conflating them and I think that there's a there's probably some value in, in differentiating them on purpose. I think there is, there is probably some element of like lived experience or like self-insertion but yeah i don't think we should conflate the two because i've done no research on that beyond the fact that they both seemed to struggle with alcoholism yes i do have problems with marlo that i don't want to necessarily ascribe to chandler aside from the fact that he put them in the book um Mm -hmm. the okay so he comes back to uh to find that what's his name is gone um that geiger's gone and he says uh i thought i could see two parallel grooves pointing that way towards like a closet as though heels had dragged whoever had done it had meant business dead men are heavier than broken hearts and you're like yes that (laughs) rules pretty good that's pretty good he just he is not afraid to all of a sudden just be lyrical um and it it fits It, it is not jarring when you encounter it at least my uh, my experience of it um yeah the the chauffeur for the sternwoods gets found in the water they're not sure how he's involved um they you think maybe brody's involved because brody took all of the smut books from uh geiger's shop after he was killed turns out brody had been casing geiger to like get in on his action um they, he's wrapped up in carmen of course there's a lot of shit. A lot of the book hinges upon Marlowe coming into a space and really not being forthright with people. Kind of coming in and maybe like 
pretending to be someone else or pretending he knows things he doesn't know uh, to get someone talking or to get them to not trust him or like figure out that they shouldn't shoot him. It's, it's stuff that you look at a lot of fiction after these types of characters get invented and you're like, oh yeah, that people do that. That's just the kind of thing that it is. Um, but I don't know. It feels very specific to who Marlowe is that he multiple times throughout the book people are like you don't really let anything you don't give anyone a clue as to what's going on do you and he's like no i don't Mm -hmm. but he is often playing angles and and pretending uh that he knows more than he does um so after geiger gets killed brody tries to blackmail uh, oh, the reason we get to Brody is because Brody tries to blackmail Vivian because he stole the nude photos of Geiger because he ran into Geiger's house after Geiger got shot. And he saw that the chauffeur was the one who killed Geiger, and that's how the chauffeur ended up in the water. Maybe Brody was responsible. Who knows? Not even Raymond Chandler knows. Um, <laughs> it's true. He doesn't. He doesn't. Um, and so Vivian shows up and that's where we get the classic, oh, there's a dame in my office moment where mm-hmm. uh, Marlo. Does he have like a like an acerbic secretary? He does not. No. And they have like mutual respect, but no sexual tension. No, he does not have like, that's one of a those. very that's a specific character type in this kind of story. Um, what does he say? He says, I had a room and a half on the seventh floor at the back. The half room was an office split in two to make reception rooms. Mine had my name on it and nothing else, and that only on the reception room. I always left this unlocked in case I had a client and the client cared to sit down and wait. I had a client. And then the chapter break, and then he describes Vivian and her legs again as she's sitting there huh. in a hat Great. or something. Good. Um, mm-hmm. That's where we find out more about Eddie Mars, his wife, who Rusty may or may not have ran off with. Um, and the, the middle of the book comes to a head with Geiger's male lover, Carol Lundgren, um, kills Brody thinking that Brody killed Geiger. Stop me if this sounds confusing. It is confusing on purpose. Um, and <laughs> I wasn't. I was just going to let you go. That's fine. Um, Lund- the depiction of Lundgren, I don't love, mostly because through Marlowe's eyes, there's a lot of just like offhanded derogatory language about gay men that doesn't, mm-hmm. It doesn't add to anything, and I don't know that Chandler is even deploying it specifically to, you know, it feels very of its time, and I would just... I mean, I've got I've got to imagine that the only reason to make somebody gay in a book like this in 1939 is to denote that, of course, they are evil in some way. If, if not... Or, de- or degenerate in yeah, some way. Yeah, it's a degenerate thing, and the, the, the thing that works is that it's like, it's... This guy is operating out of fear because if the cops find out about this relationship and and the way he lives his life, he might be in danger. But even inside of Marlowe's head, he just has a lot of just offhanded remarks that really like ring weird and bad and would have read problematic to readers at that time and read even more so now. Um, I just mentioned that because if like that's a thing that you don't want to encounter in a mystery novel, like maybe pass on this one and just read about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't, I I was reading a bunch of blog posts about like what it means for 
Marlowe's approach to his own sexuality and his own masculinity. And I think that there is, you can have, you can get value out of reading it that way. It was not what occurred to me initially, but um, it all wraps up in the fact that he did not report to the cops that a murder happens. (laughs) And then another guy got murdered while he was in the room with him. And then he caught, Carol Lundgren who committed that murder and he goes to the cops and he's like listen here's all the stuff that happened while I was working for my client Uh, you need to protect my client and keep all the blackmail that's happening out of the official records and that's where we get some stuff about how Marlowe feels about police and police work um, which I think is a thing that this type of detective has become emblematic for of like the law is not this perfect, you know, tool of society and that the people in it are corruptible and they let bad things happen when it suits them. Um, There's this guy, there's this like, you know, head of the homicide department that's like, if Geiger's death had been reported last night, the books could never have been moved from the store to Brody's apartment. The kid wouldn't have been led to Brody and wouldn't have killed him. Say Brody was living on borrowed time. His kind usually are, but a life is a life. And then Marlowe replies, right. Tell that to your coppers next time they shoot down some scared petty larceny crook running away up an alley with a stolen spare. And so Marlowe is like motivated by this belief that cops are out to serve their own interests. Even weird. Yeah, it's it's. It's weird that anybody would think that. It's weird that anyone would think that. And it's also... About these Seamuses. About these these what? That's a term that's in this book that I was like, why are we calling them Seamuses? I think it's an Irish thing, like Irish cops. Maybe. Okay, maybe. Yeah, that's a stereotype. Um, Anyway, the story all gets laundered in the press, and the official reports that make it to the newspapers like completely disassociate any of these events from each other. And that's almost like it's like the end of book one. And as I said earlier, Marlo's like, but maybe there's more. And mm-hmm. so he gets wrapped up in uh, dealing with Vivian and Carmen. Um, he gets wrapped up in this Harry Jones plot because Harry Jones shows up. And he's like, hey, Agnes, the girl from the bookstore, needs some money to get out of town now that Joe Brody's dead. Uh, I have information on where Rusty Reagan is. Spoiler from Harry Jones. Harry Jones is like, I think he's dead, and I think Eddie Mars killed him. Um, Chandler introduces kind of the closest thing to a big bad, which is a guy named Canino, mm-hmm. who is like this evil like fixer that works for Eddie Mars. And the only time that Marlowe fires a gun and kills a person is when he winds up in Mortal Kombat with Canino at the end of the book. Um, finish him. Yeah, he does He does finish him. It's true. He pulls his spine out through <laughs> his neck hole. Marlowe fatality at the end of the book. <laughs> um, and I don't really want to spoil the, like, where the Rusty Reagan plot thread goes. It it weaves together how Marlowe interacts with the two Sternwood sisters. Um, it ultimately boils down to like people not wanting to upset the general as he comes close to death and the big sleep and like not wanting to reveal to him the truth about people he cares about. I'm just thinking like 
It's and and Chandler was a he he did work on screenplays like he was and mm. he was aware of the the potential of the mystery as like a as a moving picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that he necessarily would have been thinking about this in 1939, but I'm thinking about how like visually perfect it is to have this general this like guy in a wheelchair in his greenhouse. Like you can have. The you, you can have Marlo come in and like talk to him while he has his back to Marlo and he's like clipping flowers while he talks about killing somebody or something. Like it's a very, you know what I mean? Oh like yeah, it, it's a very it's you got to give like a a big a big person in your story like the the mover and shaker. You got to give him something to do with his with his hands, <laughs> so he's not just like sitting at a desk. He's got to be doing something like. I always think about, um, and I know that we have chosen to pretend that Game of Thrones didn't happen because yeah. it was bad and it, was, it wasted everybody's well, time. Well, that one—I mean, really that fun, one shot—it was really shot, fundamentally though, disrespectful work of fiction. That I one think. shot was uh, was so good; it's going to be taught in film school. I don't know if you. Th- there was that one, but other than that, really, uh, yeah, just really uh, bad. Uh, but I do think about. Um, Tywin Lannister. Oh yeah, uh, skinning that deer while he talks to Tyrion. Yeah, yeah. And whenever I am on like a Zoom call and I'm like packing up boxes <laughs> or doing anything, it's like, man, I'm Ty- like Tywin Lannister, and nobody understands the reference. <laughs> I've learned not to make it. This is just the thing I think to myself because apparently this didn't leave as big an impression on anybody as it left on me. Well, let me talk about the moments of this book that left an impression on me. So like they, there are moments. <laughs> in this book that like have that uh cinematic flair and and i i don't know the the feedback loop of like is chandler riffing on movies that had been made and like feeding that into his fiction or does it start to become part of the visual language of fiction because it's stuff that's in his story i i don't know mm-hmm. um, yeah i don't know either. when geiger gets killed this is the the description he's sitting in his car He's outside Geiger's house. At 7.20, a single flash of hard white light shot out of, Ge- shot out of Geiger's house like a wave of summer lightning. As the darkness folded back on it and ate it up, a thin, tinkling scream echoed out and lost itself among the rain-drenched trees. I was out of the car and on my way before the echoes died. It's like, the rain is pouring down. That's the light that f- is from the camera flash, but then there's like a pop, 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 and then there's screaming. He's just really good at the, at the atmosphere of moments like that. And then contrast that with this other moment. He's chasing Lundgren, the guy who kills uh, Brody. And what I was impressed with in this... I brought a clip. Uh, what I was impressed with in this clip is the way that he doesn't actually tell you the literal thing that's happening. He's telling you the like sensory impact of what is happening. Uh, a tall, hatless figure in a leather jerkin was running diagonally across the street between the parked cars. The figure turned and flames spurted from it. Two heavy hammers hit the stucco wall beside me. The figure ran on, dodged between two cars, and vanished. And what he's he's actually saying is like, yo, I was following a guy, and a guy turned around and shot at me, and then the two bullets hit the wall. Mm-hmm. But the language has a lot of that quality to it of like, it's presenting the emotional truth of Marlowe moving through the moment. Um, and you as the reader kind of have to follow along and, and, mm-hmm. and decode it a little bit. Um, 
which makes for really engaging reading. I think I think that stuff is really visually effective. There's a scene between Harry Jones and Canino that's really uh, effective in terms of the the staging and the blocking of it. Lots of fog, lots of rain. Like if you're coming here for that aesthetic, it is here in Spades, in Sam Spades, like here for you. Um, and I and I think that, as I said before and and as that quote that you mentioned from Raymond from Raymond Chandler about like it's not a mystery that boils down to like an easy answer it's not a like a puzzle like a lock that like you the tumbler slides in the last spot and you're like oh aha it's kind of a, a awkward commentary on you know how men and women tweet treat each other and like who has power in the world and but it makes sense and it and it is a little surprising at the end um okay so what do you got in terms of this lingo stuff so i first so we talked a little about a bit about the lingo and you said to me that there was a specific paragraph that you read that was so full of lingo that it just made you laugh at it. Do you happen to have that highlighted so you can read it? And then we can jump into sort of a closing uh, game, I guess that I've prepared for you. Yes, for sure. Um, This is from the scene between Canino and Harry Jones. Um, Harry says, you know why I went to the peeper? I already told you. Account of Joe Brody's girl. She has to blow, and she's shatting on her uppers. She figures that peeper can get her some dough. I don't have any. And then Canino says, you and me will go out and talk to her. All I want is to find out, is she dummying up on you, kid? If that's the way you say it is, everything is jake You can put the bite on the peeper and be on your way. No hard feelings? I do really like every like Jake being a word that means okay. That is one I know. Like everything is Jake. I was just like, this is an incredibly dramatic scene where people's lives hang in the balance, and these people are saying Jakealoo, and she yeah. has to blow, and I went to the peeper, and I just don't know where any of this language came from. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where it came from either, but I do. So using a mix of resources, including a, uh, a piece from the Miskatonic University Press, that's uh, miskatonic.org slash slang.html, and also the uh, the jargon page from looseshadowsstories.com. Great, perfect. I picked a bunch of slang terms and I'm going to tell you the slang, and I want you to tell me what it means. Please, please do. And we, so we've started with some relatively easy ones that I think you'll be able to get. So this is this is just a, a slang lightning round, and we'll see if you paid close enough attention to Raymond Chandler to know all the slang. Okay, great. <laughs> all right, tell puss. Like a face or a mouth. Yes, it's somebody's face. Okay. Somebody's like a sour puss. Great. Uh, blower. Is that a gun? or No, it's a telephone. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> All right, getaway sticks. My getaway sticks? Mm-hmm. My getaway sticks? Mm-hmm. Think about it. Think about what it means. It's, it's, it's not a gun. No, it's My not legs. a gun. It's, yes, legs. Okay. Good job. Good job. Good job. All right, zotst. I'm like, it sounds Yiddish I'm, to me. I'm drunk. I'm sauced. No, killed. Oh, no bracelets 
Handcuffs. Excellent. Good. All right. Ankle. There are a couple of different answers for this one. I'll accept either. Wait. Can you use it in a se- ankle? If I use it in a sentence, you'll know what it is. But yes, ankle. Well, so there's a part in the book where uh, Marlo talks about coppers sticking their feet where they don't belong and breaking their ankles. And I, <laughs> I think it means like getting into trouble. No, so the noun version of ankle is a woman, of course. Really? Good safety answer. The verb is to walk, so to ankle, like, away Okay, all right, sure. Bang tails. Bang tails? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> like, pants? Racehorse. Ho- race no! <laughs> Box job. Uh, You got killed, like someone got put in a coffin. Nope, safe cracking. Damn. Duck soup. Oh, but that's like a movie. Duck soup. Everything's going great. Yeah, something easy is duck soup. Okay. Have the bees. Have the bees? I got all the money. Yeah, yeah to be rich. Okay. Good job. Fliver. Well, that's not. That's a movie with Robin Williams. No, that's Flubber. <laughs> this Fliver is a Ford car, specifically a Ford automobile. <laughs> Flogger. That's a that's a that's a Chevy is what that is. No, <laughs> it's an overcoat. Okay, all right, we're getting close to the end. On the nut, um, like on the nut. I'm like drunk. I'm like wound up. No, you're broke. Oh, you keep going to drunk, and we're not there yet. Oh, oh sure, marbles, marbles. Well, mm-hmm. that's like you know you're you're are you are you with it? Do you know what's up? No, per- <laughs> <laughs> I really like that, but no, it's pearls. Oh, oh all right, yes, and here yes. we. And here we get into the home stretch. N- to nibble one. Tie one off. To have a drink, yep. yes. A snort. To do cocaine. It's a drink. Oh, crap. To dip the bill. To have a drink. Yep, to have a drink. Smell from the barrel. Also have a drink. Out on the roof. I'm drunk. To be drunk, yes. Good job. <laughs> there are a lot of words for drunk. <laughs> I wasn't keeping track of points, but I think you passed. Okay. I think you did. you did all right. Based on your sussing out of getaway sticks and duck soup and having the beast. What do you think? uh, This is from the novel. What do you think a Chicago overcoat is? Chicago over. It sounds sort of related to like cement shoes, right? Yeah, I think it's a body bag. In context, Mm. Harry Jones is threatened with a Chicago overcoat. (laughs) Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like something they put you in to die in or to be dead in. yes i think that's true i think that's true um thank you for that quiz andrew i'm glad i did i mean there are well. a lot of other slangs yes but those were some of the ones that caught my eye there are a lot like there are a lot for prostitute oh happy yeah. lady is a prostitute like if you have a uh, round ankles or not round round heels you're a prostitute. yeah so like and i guess we'll just close on this is just like the treatment of women in the in the world of Raymond Chandler, specifically in this book, is not amazing. The the primary and I just I have never been less surprised yeah, by and I just want to contrast that with even um, like we read like we had Sophie come on to talk about Never Tell, which is like you know crime murder mystery fiction that centers women and has like you know de- fully developed women characters in it. And the women we meet in this book are like Vivian, who's the older sister with a gambling problem and missing husband. Carmen, who's essentially a child who's always giggling and biting her thumb, gets in trouble by have by trying to have sex with guys who don't want to have sex with her. 
um, Agnes, who is the opportunist from Geiger's Counter, who gets mixed up in things, and Mona, a.k.a. Silverwig, who only is at the end of the book. She is, like, protecting her her husband, who's involved in a bunch of stuff. And, like, I was, as I think I said earlier, kind of pleasantly surprised that he doesn't James Bond through them. Like, he doesn't just sleep with and discard a bunch of women over the course of the book. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, like, the book hinges on, you know, kind of women being rejected and powerless. He also makes some odd remarks about, women, like, one woman enjoying getting slapped and it's, like, as, like, a judge of her character. He, he says, it's so hard for women, even nice women, to realize that their bodies are not irresistible. And it's just, yikes! Yeah, oh boy, oh boy. yeah! It's just a lot it's, of, and it's fine for a woman to like getting slapped, but it has to be. It is not in the in context a of a, of a consensual yeah. conversation, mm-hmm. no. Um, yeah. And so there's just like there's a lot to not like about Marlowe, and I think if you come to this book excited to delve into a certain type of mystery and a certain depiction of like the West coast at this time as this land of f- former opportunity that is very corrupt now and everyone's got an angle and let's dive into that type of fiction like that is here for you there's just some other stuff that you as a modern reader may or may not want um and i there's there's compelling writing on like what this means for who marlo is and stuff like that but i, I know that that is like a thing that might not be up people's Alley? What? Yeah. Sure. Is that what it is? Yeah. Sure. Cup of tea. Did you confuse yourself? You got too many slangs. I got too many slangs at once. You've you've learned too many new slangs, and it's pushing out the old slang that you already knew. Oh, and in case we didn't say it, the big (laughs) sleep is death. It's when you're not bothered by earthly things. It's a a leveler that everyone uh, experiences, and there's kind of this feeling of like, well, what does it matter? We all go to the big sleep. Um and it's you know there you go i knew about that from the uh ren and simpy oh episode okay of course about raymond chandler's big sleep <laughs> no about the big sleep oh, sure oh sure mm, okay because they talked about death i guess yeah. well that was a show that happened it was and we don't need to talk about okay. it anymore I think actually that's, i think we're done there um andrew yeah. thanks for uh quizzing me and thanks for this uh, big sleep on this big 450th episode. Yeah, no problem. Uh, let's uh, let's ankle out of here. I will use my getaway sticks to tell you that you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Thanks to Isaac, Nora, Bronwyn, Marissa, Akshat, Aliyah, Daniel, and many more for reaching out during the past week after our episode last week with our friend Sophie Brookover. Uh, our theme song was composed by Nick Larandris. If folks want to know more about the show, Andrew, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to Apple, Google, our RSS feed. We're also available on Spotify and Stitcher and anywhere else you get podcasts. Uh, we have books, links to the books that we have read and are going to read. If you click those and buy the books, you get a book. Uh, your local independent bookseller gets business, and we get a little bit of money for hooking the two of you up. So, yeah, <laughs> that's one way you can support the show. The other way is to go to patreon.com slash overdue pod. 
Um, if you support our Patreon project, you do get bonus episodes early. You get um, uh, episodes of our long read projects early. Our current one, which is winding down, is the Arabian Nights or the 1001 Nights. Uh, our, we have decided the book for the next one. We're still working out the name, among other things. Yep. But we will be announcing that soon. Um, next week, Craig, you are you are stepping up again. You're going to be reading Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Yeah. And we will also be posting a bonus episode, Twas the Knife Before Christmas, by Jacqueline Frost. Can't wait to find out what that's about. I think I think we can guess. I think I have some guesses. I think a knife is involved. I th- I think some dame's gonna get gonna get zots by this <laughs> no! by this rusty riggin. Yeah. I'm gonna be out on the roof for that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to our show. And listening to it. Until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.